0: Welcome to Taste the Truth Tuesdays, where we have bite sized conversations on faith, fitness, nutrition, and mindset. I'll be leveraging over two decades as a personal trainer, nutritionist, and mindset coach, and together, through the lens of faith, we will discover truthful tidbits for the health conscious Christian. Hey, Happy Taste of Truth Tuesday, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to another episode. We've got a conversation with Kat Owens, Taste and See Biblical Nutrition. She'll be sharing wisdom from God's Word for enjoying food and vibrant health at the same time. We're going to talk about real foods, ancestral wisdom backed by science. The conversation definitely gets juicy when we start talking about the false religious roots of vegetarianism and how the Seventh-day Adventist Church has infiltrated many things, including the American Dietetic Association, which is the largest organization, Organization of Food and Nutrition Professionals, which I know because I have a degree in foods and dietetics, and how they're still very influential today in hospitals, educational institutions, TV, radio stations, food industries, and more. And if you've enjoyed this podcast so far, please be kind enough to leave a star rating or an Apple review or send me a message and let me know. I'd really appreciate that so much. Not only does it help edify me and encourage me to keep working, but also it helps get this podcast into more listeners' ear. And with that, let's get started. All right, everybody, I am here. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. And we have Kat Owens with us, and she's going to be sharing wisdom from God's word on how you can enjoy food. And vibrant health at the same time. So, thank you so much for joining me tonight. How are you doing today? Thank you, Megan. I'm great. I'm always happy, excited to talk about this topic. I'm sure. Uh, Will you share a little bit more about yourself, your testimony? Like, how long have you been a believer and walking with Christ before we kick off the topic?
1: Yeah. So, I became a Christian kind of on my own in high school, and it really is just the story of the fact that God draws us to Him. Because I cannot tell you why it was that I started feeling drawn to get involved as Christians, to read the Bible. I was familiar with a little bit of all that stuff, but I just, at some point, God revealed to me that following him meant giving our whole lives to him. It wasn't just a matter of, do we want to do this a little bit? Do we want to do this a lot? It was, God demands everything from us. And when I realized that, I knew that that's what I had to do, and that's what I wanted to do. And it's been awesome uh, healing for me, having that hope and Christian community and everything that involved. So for about 10, 15 years now, that's what I've been walking on.
0: And so I love how you're now applying the mindset of nutrition from God's word, because some people say that maybe scripture isn't sufficient. And while maybe we hear a little bit about stewarding the earth, people have told me I've heard that they don't really know like well Eastern diets give us a lot more clarity are you Vedic to, you know we have to go outside of the Bible to know how to eat how do you feel about that
1: oh interesting yeah that's an interesting perspective you know i I got really interested in studying nutrition from a biblical perspective because just from the very start I could tell that what I was getting from modern medicine and even from a lot of other nutrition advice was there, it's it didn't necessarily line up with a biblical worldview. And the more you look into it, the more you learn how much some of the common beliefs are rooted in these false religions or even just false interpretations of the Bible. And I don't think people realize that. And then, you know, people who do like you're talking about, that's, That's concerning as well. And the Bible doesn't specifically tell us this is what you should eat or this is what's most beneficial for you to eat. But I think when we're using what we know from a biblical worldview and we're also looking at human history and we're making sure that all lines up with good science, then we can have a lot of clarity in this world that is so confusing
0: for a lot of people. I mean, that is a great summary of so many things we're going to touch on in today's conversation. So, what is biblical nutrition then? Yeah.
1: So I also want to make sure that I'm clear when I'm talking about what this means, because there could be some misconceptions about this, right? So we're not talking about commandments about what to eat, that the Bible is saying this is morally right. This is morally wrong. You know, the Old Testament had these dietary laws about what was clean and unclean. But then what we see in the New Testament is Jesus declared all food clean and that law was fulfilled. So what we're talking about is not any kind of it's morally wrong to eat this or that or follow this diet. It's about what can be beneficial for you. Uh, this also isn't a prosperity theology. So we're also not saying that, you know, by looking to the Bible to figure out what you're going to eat, you're guaranteed good health because we also know that it's sometimes God's will that you learn from suffering and from disease or an injury and things like that. So really what we're talking about here is being able to cut through that confusion by using that biblical worldview, like I just mentioned, potential to enjoy food and good health at the same time and even to be able to live out some biblical wisdom more easily. You know, the Bible does talk about things like gluttony and uh, addiction and our food choices really can't influence how easy or hard it is to live out those commandments. And then I also think it's it's just the potential to live out richer community and hospitality
0: through food and learning the best way or good way to do that. Well, we do see the message so much all throughout scripture of food, of dining. One of the ordinances in the New Testament is sharing bread and wine. So I do believe that there's a big connection. I mean, we see one of the main meta meta narratives of scripture in general is the marriage. And what happens at a marriage or the celebration of some two individuals getting married is definitely a feast. So there's food involved there. So I think that there's a close connection there. And I appreciate when you clarified what biblical nutrition is, you also clarified what it is not. Diet culture is part of our overall culture that I think biblical Christians are easily influenced by that and not sure how to stand their ground. And then, I mean, because when it comes to food, what are the prevailing modern beliefs that nutrition, I mean, I told you before we hopped on our like record that I have my degree in dietetics. So that's a lot of modern beliefs in nutrition. So what are those largely based on?
1: Yes. I'm sure you've seen a lot of this that for one thing, just government and food industry has a huge influence. And I'm constantly learning just how big that influence is. You know, what is, where's the money? And that's what's going to end up in your, on your shelf. That's what's the government's going to end up juice or whatever it means a lot of, a lot of the modern beliefs about food and I think we might get into this more, is that it actually really does, when we look at it, come from this evolutionary worldview. And that's something that's easy not to see right away. But it's when we're figuring out what is what are humans supposed to eat? We can really easily go one of two ways, which is one, we really have this belief. And I think often it's subconscious, but you see this so often in our culture, this belief that we're somehow more evolved than people of the past you know, it's real easy to laugh at people in the past thinking like they're so backwards and they just don't know, you know, we have the internet, we have cell phones. Of course, we know more than than people did before us, right? Like somehow we're smarter and we're more involved and it really does come from the evolutionary worldview. But you can also look at an evolutionary worldview and end up coming to the conclusion that maybe we should be eating like hunter-gatherers or animals, that that's where we came from. And, you know, whether you believe in short or longer creation Whatever it is, the point is, we know from Genesis that God created us as humans, set apart from animals from the very start. And that actually has a huge impact on how we end up answering that question. What should humans be eating? What is the proper human diet? And we know that God created humans well from the start. We're not more evolved than people in the past. There's a lot we can learn from the past, which is why I come back to a lot of these ancestral principles. So that's one thing.
0: Yeah, I understand so much considering I spent most of my life, 37 years outside of a Christian worldview. That's a lot of undoing I'm still working through. It's very interesting having to shift through how much science in general is rooted outside of the biblical worldview. So while we can still learn from science and God, you know, scripture says that things in nature reveal the Lord. So, it's like, science is just catching up with Lord what God's already done, right? That's really interesting. And so, will you share a little bit more about how this purely evolutionary worldview struggles to make sense of man's role in food and health? Because you kind of touched on it, but I think that is really the the missing point. Why we all are struggling so much trying to solve this problem?
1: Yeah, it's huge. You know, the so the first part of that is I think what's most common, which is just this idea that we know more than people in the past because we're somehow more evolved than them. And when we have that view, then we are just susceptible to every new whim of science thinking this is going to solve our problems, this is going to solve our health problems, our climate problems, whatever it is. And, you know, we can create new food in a lab to replace something humans have been eating forever, think that's healthier and, and never question that. But then the other part of that, I think we see more commonly with people who are diving a little more into nutrition this belief that well we need to look back to how animals the animals we evolved from were eating or how hunter gatherers were eating and even a lot of people i follow and learn a lot from i realize that this is their starting point and so that's something you just have to be aware of and sift through the information i was recently listening to a podcast between two doctors that i really respect and i like following and i learn a lot from them you know, I don't have to throw out everything someone is teaching just because, you know, maybe I've got something wrong. But they were debating this question of what is the right carb intake for humans? And one of the doctors that belief was entirely based on the belief that we evolved as hunter-gatherers eating nothing but meat. And for the other, it was based on the belief that we evolved in tropical regions, eating a lot of tropical fruit. So when these doctors come to these conclusions and largely based on recommendations, based on those foundations, you know, people might not realize that's where it's coming from. And that's something you have to be aware of. We are coming from a totally different foundation with those kind of questions.
0: And it's, it is difficult, as I was noticing and just studying counseling worldviews, coming from mental health struggles. And navigating uh, some of the tips and tools and techniques that they're recommending, i I started asking. This doesn't seem like it aligns as 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 a new Christian. It felt off. Mm-hmm. And the more I get into it, I'm like, wow. Some of the stuff is rooted more in the Eastern mysticism, mystic kind of energy worldview that doesn't really align with what the Bible teaches. That's kind of confusing. So I've been shifting through. That And it makes sense that that would also come through in our nutrition perspective. So it sounds like there's kind of two narratives, I feel. We have the technical people who could live on soylent green and are super cool with that and just see themselves as materialistic robots. There's no Lord. There's no God. I can just like, I'm a robot and everything's just like, I'm a machine. And then we have the other folks who are really into potentially, I feel like it's the paleo I want to eat in season. I love bioenergetic nutrition or pro-metabolic peeps. I love learning from them. They are so intelligent, but yeah, then they kind of dive off to that. And that's just kind of the presupposition that most scientists fall under is materialism and evolution. Overall, theory is on trial right now in overall science, which I find really cool. So hopefully that will trickle down and we'll start seeing that the common theme is that there's a creator. There is some creator. It doesn't prove that God of the Bible is necessarily the creator yet, but hey, science is showing that there's a fine-tuned universe that has a creator. There was a banger to the Big Bang, and that's really neat. So I'm really into that. And I I don't know if you've ever studied any of Hugh Ross's stuff, but he's really, really cool. I can send you some of his stuff. Uh, So I love that you kind of already touched on the difference between the covenants of But we read in the Old Testament, which has the, you know, Levitical laws, the dietary laws, which we definitely see a resurgence right now with the Hebrew roots cult. Sorry, guys, but it's a cult. And we will pray for them, too. Any of this, um, I speak out, none of this is judgment and condemnation. It's always about evaluation and being like, okay, does this align with what Scripture says? And we get concerned when we see accounts that are promoting that that that's what we have to do. We have to fall in line with what the covenant of those dietary laws were. I find them very restrictive. And so what, what's the biblical perspective on eating meat in general? Because that's getting very demonized right now with the climate change. And again, a lot of that's rooted in you know, not trusting God, materialism, and also pork. Because pork is fits in with kind of the Hebrew roots, that old covenant concept. And some people who might be listening don't know a lot about that. And a lot of people might know in general the anti-meat narrative that is very strongly pushed, gaining steam in Europe and stuff.
1: Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot to say here. So, yeah, start with we'll start with talking about meat, and and this is another thing when you asked about the prevailing worldview we have today, and you touched on, you mentioned the Eastern religions. This is actually another big influence on these modern beliefs because all over we're seeing people also largely based in their nutrition advice uh, on this idea that meat is the food that needs to be avoided, fat, saturated fats, is the food that needs to be avoided. And we would be led to believe that that also is all scientific based. But reality, that is completely based in religion. And the very first time we ever see any kind of vegetarian diet promoted, it was in Hindu and Jain religions. So thousands of years old. And interestingly, when Christianity began to spread, it actually made vegetarianism less popular in some parts of the world because that was never seen as lining up with christian religion at that time but then but then what happened to really make this common in western countries and then it spread to other countries from here is in the u.s in the 1800s we had this great awakening and the temperance movement was a big part of this and temperance was largely about alcohol, but it was more than that. It was really this overall belief about self-control and self-denial and kind of this belief that that was going to make you more righteous and that any kind of indulgence was going to lead to certain kind of sins, especially sexual temptation, things like that. And so there were some new sects of Christianity that came out of that, um, but also just influential Christian leaders who really grabbed onto this idea of temperance. And um, because of that, started advocating really strongly for vegetarianism, cutting down on meat, fat. It wasn't just meat. They were attacking really anything that was seen as an indulgence: alcohol, coffee, uh, just any kind of fine foods, anything enjoyable, really, it had to go. I really see that as being an example of asceticism this idea that somehow just through self-denial, we're going to make ourselves more righteous, right? And meat is an easy target because we have this human intuition that that is a satisfying, nourishing, tasty food, right? And so anytime someone starts diving into that and what you should eat and not eat, meat is an easy target. But the New Testament warns us against asceticism. Paul warns us against that and says that that does not make us righteous. We know that You know, there's benefits to fasting, for example, but it's not that we're achieving some kind of righteousness in God's eyes because we're simply because we're denying ourselves. Right. So anyway, this preacher, I believe he's a Presbyterian preacher, Sylvester Graham, at this time, you know, jumped onto this temperance movement, started preaching about vegetarian diets. He's known as the father of vegetarianism, really, because he was a big influence on advocating this in the U.S. The uh, graham cracker is named after him, but then his beliefs were very similar to what the Seventh Day Adventist Church started talking about, which they really took that. Sylvester so Graham was first, but they really took hold of that and made it very influential. So the Seventh Day Adventist Church is responsible for inventing a lot of these foods that have replaced our what was a lot of animal-based foods in them in the American diet. They invented breakfast cereal with the intention of replacing meat and eggs as kind of a conventional American breakfast. So obviously they've been very successful at that. They're responsible for the mer- the first fake meat, marketing nut butters as a replacement for real butter. And there are, uh, I was very surprised to see just how many food companies today, these huge food companies that are all over your grocery store are owned or were started or somehow managed by the Seventh-day Adventist church. And today it's a lot of, can be a lot of sugar and a lot of things that were not necessarily intended by the original Seventh-day Adventists who were trying to promote these healthy diets, but, but they're still achieving that purpose of getting animal foods out of the diet and getting more plant foods in the diet. Seventh-day Adventist churches also had a huge influence on government dietary guidelines, not just in the U.S., but all around the world. They own a lot of educational institutions, especially for healthcare, hospitals, nursing homes all kinds of things. So they're they're having a huge influence on this. And those ideas were originally religious for them, those kind of aesthetic ideas. But then they also had this belief that because humans were not eating meat in the Garden of Eden, that that was the ideal human diet. You know, there was no death in the garden. Most people would say, you know, that means we were not eating meat in the garden, okay. But we're just missing out on that how different life was at that time, how different the world was at that time. And we really aren't called to try to go back and entirely replicate the Garden of Eden in that way. When we look at the rest of the Bible, that's just not what we see, right? We see that at certain times, God's people, the Israelites in the Old Testament, were even commanded to eat meat. They were definitely explicitly given meat to eat after the flood. And then... A little while later, they get these dietary laws, which are really, really interesting because, I mean, not only is that explicitly giving them meat to eat, but it's there's a lot we can learn from those today. And, you know, we've already covered on that. We're not definitely not advocating that there's any kind of moral weight to these today. I have been surprised, too, to see how many Christians there are actually that do still advocate that. I I get concerned when I see Christians trying to put that on other people. We're talking about this from the perspective that there was a reason God gave His people these commandments, and there's things we can learn from them today. And the world we live in today is a lot different than thousands of years ago when these were given, so the takeaways might be a little different. But what can we learn from these today? So the really, really interesting one that I love to talk about is the very first food that was specifically called clean in these dietary laws. It says that this is Leviticus 11:3 talks about how any animal that had a divided hoof and choose the cud, God says, that animal is clean for you. That might seem really random, really odd, but what that commandment was doing was it was, div- it was differentiating what were called ruminants. So ruminants are any kind of grass-eating animal that has multiple stomachs. They have four stomachs. And what those four stomachs allow them to do is to take grass, which is generally a hard-to-digest, not nutrient-dense food. Not too different from salads, but, you know, that's a different topic. And they can take that and turn that into good nutrition for themselves and for us when we eat them. Other grass-eating animals that are uh, monogastric and with one stomach, they have to do other things to try to digest grass. So a rabbit, for example, not a divided hoof, only has one stomach. For example, they eat their feces. And that's essentially their way of redigesting that grass multiple times until they can digest it. cow doesn't have to do that. They have four stomachs, and those act like fermentation tanks. That allows them to get that nutrition out of that grass in a clean way. Uh, just really, really amazing creatures. So what kind of animals are ruminants? I mentioned cows already. But this is also going to be deer, elk, moose, goats, sheep. And what's really interesting about that is that all of those animals are what would be considered red meat. And depending on the definition you use of red meat, you could even say all red meat comes from ruminants. And the thing about red meat is not only is it going to be high in fat compared to most other animals, but it is also going to be the highest in saturated fat. So it's when we look at everything we hear today about red meat and saturated fat and animal fat, it's just very hard to believe that those kind of foods are bad when we see that those are the foods that God specifically said were clean and gave to his people. If red meat was really responsible for all these things we hear about today, heart disease, diabetes, climate change, you name it, or saturated fat or any of that, that was responsible for all of those problems. How easy would it have been to identify these ruminants, the saturated fat, the red meat, and then just say, don't eat these? But that's not what it says. It says the exact opposite. It says, eat these. These are the ones you should eat. I really believe that based on that, I believe the church could have come out from the very start and stood up against this anti-saturated fat narrative that we started getting in the 1950s. I really think the church could have done that. And we might be living in a very different world that we are today. But as Christians, we have the ability to look back on that now and think and see, you know, all this stuff we're hearing, this does not line up with what we see in God's Word. And then you mentioned pork. You know, that's another really interesting one. Again, I'm never gonna tell someone that eating pork is wrong. But there's some interesting reasons why that was a commandment given to God's people. Pigs were often not raised, I mean still not raised in the cleanest environment. So there's some contamination risks there. Pigs are very similar genetically to humans. That's why you, you can do an organ transplant with pig organs and they usually they usually work. So there's a disease risk there, just different communicable diseases that are a lot easier to pass between pigs and humans. But also pigs are kind of scavengers. They are they're gonna eat whatever, you know, you give them. And today I think there's we have a lot bigger concerns when it comes to that fact. That basically what we what we can learn from that is that what we the animals we eat, what they eat matters. The diet of our food matters. So we see that in the commandment with not eating pig, but we also see that with all the rest of the dietary commandments, they're mostly about don't eat scavengers, don't eat bottom feeders, don't eat things that are eating dead animals. The food, our food to eat matters. And today, I think that's a much bigger concern than it even was at the time because the problem we have today is that most of our meat is coming from animals who are being fed very inappropriate diets. They're not eating the way God intended to them to be eating. Cows and feedlots are being fed. I mean, largely grain. And it's not that grains and are necessarily the problem, but the quantities, the types, the weights given to them, it's not like the grass they're eating on a pasture. And it, it doesn't end there. Cows are being fed fat from other cows. We no longer feed cows meat from other cows. The mad cow disease scare kind of stops that. But cows can still be given the fat from other cows. They're given all kinds of waste products. It can be, you know, leftover candy, bakery goods, just almost anything that is a source of calories that they can give to an animal and get them to put it in their mouth as well. And this is definitely not um, just an issue with cows. This, this is how pigs are fed. This is how chickens are fed. And it's actually a bigger concern with chickens and pigs because these ruminants, these awesome creations, ruminants are actually really good processors of what they eat. And it doesn't, that bad diet does not come through as much to us when we eat a, a conventionally fed cow. But with pigs, with chicken. This is going to this actually has a huge impact on the quality of fat, how nutritious it is, not to mention just the animal welfare concerns you could get into, which is a whole different topic of how are these animals being treated. So there's a lot we could talk about with that. But
0: And so I'm really grateful for you bringing clarity to that and uh, just the difference between, you know, conventional diets, because right now food costs is through the roof. And so, you know, a big takeaway that, you know, we will circle back like more tips you can have of what you might give to your clients for people who are going to be inspired from this conversation to make some dietary shifts. But right now I heard that comes to maybe not being able to eat organic or pasture raised food for every choice, conventional raised cow or ruminant. Like, so bison is really easy to find in the store typically, and cow are going to be a little bit better for you, and I read that from sustainable diet um, or from another dietitian I love following as well. Like meat is so nutritious, even if it's not organic or pasteurized, raised, eating red meat is actually still really good for you. And if yeah. we're talking chicken and chicken and pork, those might, if you can't afford it, those might be the ones that you might want to, you know, outsource. Even stuff from Whole Foods, you know, is going to be better than maybe something that you might find, but still, and that's hard and sad, even when it comes to shampoos, deodorants conditioners it's really difficult to find stuff that's not run with all sorts of stuff so I feel like we've touched on so many really good topics I really appreciate it and the other thing I think this can feel really overwhelming for people do you agree yeah, yeah. now life's already really hard and I don't know about you but coming up with a dinner plan all the time can be a lot going grocery shopping is a lot so how can people who might be really new to this information process it and assimilate it and kind of take bite by bites to change their lifestyle to be a little bit more glorifying God with the food that they're eating.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I see all the time that people, they maybe decide they want to eat a little healthier, but it's overwhelming and they don't know where to start. Or if they, they do start, then they end up just kind of following. It might be these dogmatic beliefs about processed food or meat or sugary food or whatever it is. And I just so badly want people to have some clarity on that because you can, if you're going to put a little bit of effort or a lot of effort or whatever into making changes to your diet, you can do that in a really efficient way or you can do that in a really inefficient way or you can do that in a completely counterproductive way. And I just hate to see people trying so hard and they're doing things that this is not doing you much good or this is actually doing you less good. This is maybe actually hurting you. So much I could say about, you know, what the absolute ideal diet would be, but the, the thing I really love to encourage people with is that the number one thing you can do to eat healthier is just cook more of your food from scratch. You don't have to worry about, without even worrying anything about what ingredients are good or bad or how much of this or that or macronutrients or anything. If you just start, the more you can make your food from scratch, the healthier you're going to be, period. Like there's, there's almost no exceptions to that. You know, if that's, instead of getting a takeout pizza, you, buy a crust and put the toppings on yourself. That's a little better. You make the crust yourself. Well, that's even going to be a little better. Gosh, you should get to the point where you're making you know, cheese and everything. Uh, just the more you can do yourself, the better it's going to be period because you just cannot buy pre-made food at a store or from a restaurant that is going to be the same as what you make from home. And
0: I think, of- I think why we want to touch on that is something you talk a lot about that we haven't touched on. And I think I wanted to, when you mentioned well, what about what our animals eat? And so you talked a little bit about how they're fed, you know, soy, corn, grains, that's not an appropriate diet for them. And that causes more polyunsaturated fat ratios that we would see. We haven't talked about PUFA and the PUFA apocalypse that we have going on in society right now. And I love your biblical take on this. So I'd like to just like talk a little bit more about PUFAs because that's why we don't, Uh, have the luxury to eat out as much as we used to because canola oil, sunflower oil, vegetable oils, that's what most of these places, even, you know, whole foods and, you know, all these more like hippie greenwash stores are still going to be using those PUFA oils in their delis and then that stuff. So that can be really hard on our digestive system. So can you clarify one, maybe why, why like it can give us like a digestive impact and I call it yum gross, like uh, tastes good, but makes me feel gross after Yum Gross, to uh, how does it go kind of against the biblical narrative? Because your post on that is so incredible. I just really appreciate it.
1: Oh, thanks. Yeah, definitely can't end this without talking about poofas, because this is one of my favorite topics. I am a huge believer that the most harmful thing by far we are eating today is these vegetable oils. And we can call those seed oils. It's a more technical term for them because they don't actually come from vegetables. They come from seeds, like grains. Or PUFAs, polyunsaturated fats, because that's mostly what they are. And the thing is, these oils never used to exist. The the te- the Industrial Revolution created the technology necessary to extract these oils from these grains and seeds and make these oils. This is a, a huge problem when people are abiding by this evolutionary worldview and thinking, oh, we know more than people that the past. And when I said, you know, we can invent an entirely new food and replace the food people have always been eating and not question that, that's, this is mostly what I'm talking about. So what happened, really is people started getting scared of saturated fat. We know now the science behind that is all wrong. We just talked about how It doesn't line up with the biblical worldview. And so what people did is they started replacing saturated fats with these polyunsaturated fats, the vegetable oils. And now, because they're so cheap to make, which is despite the large industrial process that goes into them, because they're waste products of other industries, because there's government subsidies that keep a lot of these grain prices really cheap, these vegetable oils are very cheap. So they've become a massive part of our diet. You don't see it. People don't realize it. I studied nutrition for a long time before I realized this, how big of a problem these were and realized how many I was still getting exposed to, even though I wasn't cooking with them. Because you go out to any restaurant, you buy any kind of healthy food. And this is really the problem when people are maybe trying to make a diet change, like I mentioned, but they're just, they think, okay, I'm going to eat healthier. So I'm going to go buy organic or I'm going to go to Chipotle instead of McDonald's. And they don't really know the why behind it. They're just trying to kind of do things that seem healthier based on our culture. And a lot of times, this is the casualty of that is that you are still getting exposed to just as many of these vegetable oils. Chipotle cooks all of your food with vegetable oils, just like McDonald's. You can go to Whole Foods, like you said, and buy organic food. And it's still full of these vegetable oils. If you want to start getting into the why of what actually makes food healthy and unhealthy, it's the number one thing you can do is just... Make sure you're avoiding meat. Obviously, make sure you're not cooking with them, but start reading the ingredients and make sure you're not buying food that has these. And don't ever think that just because something is marketed as healthy, that because it comes from whole foods or because it's organic, that it's not going to have these. They're usually just as bad. You just even not work. You know, looking for those and you can easily find online good lists of what these include. I've got some posts on my page about what these vegetable oils are, but the big ones are going to be like canola, sunflower. Soybean, safflower, grape seed. The best fats you can be eating are really going to be animal fats, but fats that come from a fruit like avocado oil, olive oil, coconut oil, those are going to be good options as well. So, those are really what someone wants to stick to. The main reason why I said cooking your own food is the best thing you can do to eat healthier is because you're going to be able to avoid those a lot easier. But that's also what I think is so exciting about this approach is when we're talking about eating healthier, we're not telling anyone they have to cut out desserts or carbs or sweets or cinnamon rolls or pizza or fries or anything enjoyable. This is not some kind of eat healthier by denying yourself. It's just you got to make it yourself. You can go make French fries yourself with beef tallows. You can go make your own donuts with frying them in an animal fat, and it's going to be world's better than what you would get going out and getting these at a restaurant. I I think this is my biblical approach to this is just saying that the reason we're eating so many of these is because we fell for this lie that saturated fat was bad. And we fell for this lie that we could create our own invention, really a totally man-made fat, replace something that humans have been eating forever that God gave us, which is animal fat, that we could replace that with our own invention and somehow that was going to be better. And we realize that that's really what's behind it. I just think for a Christian, that shouldn't make sense.
0: Yeah. And so when we're navigating nutrition labels, because they are in a lot of foods that just come in a box or a bag, the farther down the list, you might see one of these seed oils, the smaller percentage it is. So sometimes it is unavoidable. And I want to just say, I feel you guys on that. So when you're looking at labels, if it's pretty high up, you're going to want to just put in the label. So the sooner it is like listed in the ingredients, the higher percentage oil is going to be a part of that product. So I would say we buy some, I'll post them on my Instagram once in a while. We find some like crackers that are going to have, they have sunflower oil in them, but it's like the sixth ingredient in the label. And so I let it slide. And the other rule we have in here. Is because I've recovered from an eating disorder, and so it can be a little bit intense navigating this stuff. And I say what you do every day matters a lot. So the foods that your staples, the things that you're eating every day—that means coffee too—matters or tea, whatever you drink. But once you do, what what you do once in a while, especially if we are at these fellowship events with our fellow church people. You and I both know that that's not going to be at the level it would be if we cooked all that food at home, right? So we're still going to go into these fellowship events, grateful for the opportunity. You know what I mean? We just don't, I just wanted to make that clear that sometimes it's going to be really difficult to avoid these things, but cooking at home, we're actually having a pastor over sharing with him. What's one of our biggest things about making friends is that we don't eat out a lot. They invite us out to like California pizza kitchen or some of these places. And I don't even want to sound rude, but I'm like, I don't remember the last time I ate at that place. That would make me just feel physically sick too. Like I I call it yum gross. It's not a technical term, but it's a thing. And even in my eating disorder recovery, my therapist was like, you know, Hey, if it doesn't make you feel good, that's not disorder to avoid it. And so a lot of what we see in society is that this food is not real food. And that's why Some of us might have a palate where it still tastes really good, but once you shift and start eating more food from home and eating more uh, just homemade foods, all of a sudden that stuff doesn't taste the same. And I really appreciate your insights there and your encouragement where just cooking from home doesn't have to be difficult. And she's got a lot of helpful posts on that. And also some of these concepts apply to genetically engineered foods. So we have the concept GMOs, which is genetically modified organisms, which we've had people in, you know, greenhouses breeding plants and not in itself, you have that post that goes kind of against that we could touch. I'd love to, t- we've been ca- talking for a long time, which I love, but I would love to touch a little bit on GMOs or genetically engineered organisms, which are found in Monsanto's products. We haven't touched on that. That's a whole nother rabbit hole. And maybe I could bring you back on once you're done with maternity leave and we could touch base more on that. Cause I was reading altered genes, twisted truth mm-hmm. back a long time ago. And the data we have against just the FDA and stuff. It's legal stuff. It's real. And I'd really love to chat. There's some brief about that and how that doesn't fit into a biblical worldview, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah.
1: Would never want to say, you know, it's morally wrong for a Christian to eat something that's genetically modified. But the reality is when we just, and and I know you're not saying that either. When I talk about these topics, I just always want to clarify that. What we see when we really start looking into what is behind GMOs, what is the worldview here? Why are these Why do these exist? Why are these becoming so common? Just the foundation behind it just doesn't line up with this biblical worldview because it's really all about just huge centralized industries, having control over this food system, taking away the autonomy, the work ethic of small farmers, but also just this belief that we have to use these industrial processes these government subsidies to be able to feed the world, which is really not true, and that we have to go in and modify genes. You know, some people call that plain God. I think that's probably an accurate thing to say in order to try to feed the world. But the reality is that when we see these problems of food production and animal welfare, environmental welfare, God already created the solution to these problems in his creation. There's a lot to say about how what would it look like to get back there, but... It, the amazing thing in God's creation is that he created a world that is productive and where animals and plants can work together in these small-scale systems. And it it's good for the animals, it's good for us, it's good for the earth all at once. And when we deviate from that, we just end up creating our own system where we're creating all these old problems because we're not doing things according to this order God made in his creation and then we're trying to figure out ways to patch up those problems, and we're trying to figure out ways to patch up those problems. And what we really need to do is just go back to those sites and look at how does this work in, in nature. GMOs are just another one of those patches that we're trying to patch up these problems, and, and then it just creates more problems in itself.
0: Yeah, and a lot of we're the test subjects. I mean, even with this new appeal product that is now coming on to produce, particularly organic apples and a lot of other produce to help extend the shelf life. A lot of people don't know about it. There's supposed to be a sticker on your produce, but it could be fallen off by the time it arrives to your store. so there's a lot of that. So a couple things I want to touch on as we wrap up. you mentioned and I kind of touched on it when people start to pick up on these topics and want to begin eating healthier, they can easily get overwhelmed. The other thing I wanted to touch on, as you said, sometimes we might know we want to make a change, but how we go about making the change causes more complications. And we see that within the world scope, but we also see that toxic diet culture has influenced the church and that's why we stumble. So what are some of the key things you think that's like where we see I need to avoid sugar? Mm-hmm. Uh, if you want to touch on a couple of those trends that you mentioned you mentioned we do things that make it more difficult. We want to just quickly go over what are some of those things that Christians might be doing that are falling, you know, more away from a sustainable habit just because culture's doing it.
1: What a lot of, a lot of these, you know, diets we hear about, for one thing, like we've kind of already touched on, they might be coming from these roots that really don't line up with the Bible. I'm sure there's lots of people out there who are going to be trying to Go vegetarian or vegan for New Year's, you know, and I even I see Christians doing this. This is um, a way this is kind of coming to the church particularly, is because we know that we should be concerned about animal welfare. We know we should be caring about the environment. Christians should care about that. It doesn't mean we have to worship the environment. It doesn't mean we have to elevate animals to the level of humans. But it's good when Christians have concern about that. But then they can be misled to thinking that eating a vegetarian diet is the way to do that. And and there's a whole lot more that could be said about why that's not good for your health. But also it's really not the solution to environmental or even animal welfare problem. You know, Christians could be getting misled by these diets that are not going to line up with really a biblical worldview. But the other thing about almost any diet out there is we have this deeply held belief in our culture that eating healthy means you avoid enjoyable foods. It's like this dichotomy between are you going to enjoy your food or are you going to be healthy? It's like no matter what that you follow, people believe that it's got to be one or the other. And we've already talked about asceticism. But even just knowing that God created us well, he made his creation well, he made our bodies well. How does it make any sense to think that God gave us these appetites for meat or fat or sweet foods or anything that we have to deny those? to be healthy. God didn't make a mistake when he gave us those appetites. It's mostly a problem of how we have taken those kind of foods, make, made our own fake versions of them. And then that's what people think those, food, those foods are. That's really the problem. So I try to tell Christians a, an important part of figuring out a really healthy, sustainable, God-honoring diet is reject this belief that food healthy food is not enjoyable and figure out what it actually is that makes food healthy. And you're going to find that oftentimes, you know, homemade food tastes great, right? A real homemade pizza with a sourdough crust. I mean, that tastes way better than something from a box or takeout or something. And I, I made a post about that recently too, that it's like, why do we think fast food is somehow more enjoyable than something we could make at home? It's kind of crazy.
0: Or they call it, I'm treating myself. And I'm like, right. hey, it gives me yum growth. So why is like, no, that's <laughs> not a treat. and That's mean to myself. It's not a treat.
1: Yes, exactly. Exactly. But then the other thing I see in the church sometimes is this belief that any kind of diet is bad because it's like a shortcut. Like if I have a health goal I'm trying to achieve, well, if I go try to follow a diet that's not the way I should be approaching this because what I should be is I sh- I should be doing is just relying on God more for self control. You know, we might see this with like weight loss a lot. I don't need to go follow you keto know, to lose weight. I need to just have more self-control to eat less and I need to rely on God for that self-control. Or maybe people don't even want to do anything practical because I just need to pray about it and have faith that God's going to heal me. So that's a couple other things that I've seen come up. But what people don't realize there is that, you know, if you're just trying to eat less calorie restriction really is a fat diet. And it doesn't work so well either. And we won't get into everything about weight loss right now and how that's not a great way to lose weight. But the standard American diet, or even just trying to eat less to lose weight, those those are not normal things in terms of human history. And they really are fad diets as well. So don't think that you're somehow not falling into diet culture because you're just avoiding what people call a bad diet. Just because you call something a bad diet does not mean it's automatically bad. And anything that's considered normal is good. That's pretty unbalanced, actually.
0: I appreciate that. And so in the show notes, I will have a blog that correlates with this. So I will then type up a lot more information that I will get off of her post. So if there's if there'll be more information in the blog. So if you guys are just titillated and want to dive more into some of this stuff, don't worry, I will link it so it's easy to navigate. I want to close today, if you wouldn't mind sharing anything about this devotional that you teased a little bit on, it's called Eating for the Glory of God. Yeah, thanks. What I'm doing right now is I'm coming up with an
1: upgraded class. I've been teaching classes for a little while now, but uh, really overhauling my class and then making those class materials also into a devotional. And the intention with that is that I have these materials that I can teach classes either in person or online. I really love teaching small groups of women about this topic. That's my favorite thing to do. But at the last conference I was at, I also got a lot of feedback that there's people out there who want to teach these kind of things themselves. They've got a group from church or friends or neighbors that are interested in this, and they have this burden to share with them you know, I think we've all seen Christians who they're sharing prayer requests, and it's just heartbreaking the health problems we're dealing with, right? And those of us who've maybe started experimenting, experiencing some success ourselves, we know that there's answers out there. And we want to be able to share this with other people. And so if the material I've already created, I've already spent a very long time working on, if those can be helpful to other people, I want want to be able to share those with other people. So uh, these are class materials I can teach a class myself, or these are materials people can take and go teach a class. They can use those to facilitate, teach a class themselves to their own group of friends, which is, which is, I would love to see that. Um, but then I'm also making those materials into a devotional because sometimes the best format might just be something you can do on your own or with a, a small group of friends as a devotional. And my starting point with these materials is eating to the glory of God. We, this commandment in Corinthians, it's Paul gives the people, what does that really mean? Because there's a lot of biblical truths that come into that. There's so much we can learn about God and God's word, but also really practical things. I want to draw in the practical as well. What are the most practical things we can be doing to actually improve our health and our family's health and putting that all together in a succinct format that's going to be helpful for Christians on my Instagram, on my email list. I'm keeping people updated about that.
0: Yes. So all those links will be in the show notes, guys. So I definitely want you to make sure that you find her on Instagram, you get on the email list, so you stay in the loop. Lastly, will you share just for funsies, what does the word nourishment mean to you? Just right off the cuff.
1: I love, I love that word. (laughs) I think of that physically and
0: spiritually
1: when I hear that word. And so I really believe that anything that is nourishment, it should be both. And anything that is it both, is probably not real nourishment. So Mm -hmm. is this satisfying? Is this enjoyable? I'm, I'm a huge believer that real healthy food should be something we can thank God for, truly thank God for and enjoy it. Is this, you know, but also how am I connecting with God and his creation through this, through making it or what I know about it? How is this nourishing me spiritually, physically, you know, do, what are all the long-term effects of this and then nutrition, obviously, you know, the, the little science kind of behind it, but is it something I'm enjoying? Is it something I can give thanks to God for? I think that all goes into what nourishment really is. I
0: love that. I feel like the word healthy kind of got hijacked by diet culture in itself. Some mm-hmm. people say, I want to eat healthy. People feel negative about it. Nourishment really seems to hit home for people mm-hmm. and I've, like I've never... I've never heard it spoken about the way you did. So I really appreciate that wisdom that you're closing our conversation with. So thank you for fitting me in and just everybody thanks for taking the time to listen. I really do appreciate you spending time with me on this podcast next week we will have a solo episode we'll be focusing on mindset and fitness and then the following is part two with Beck Berry, Birth, Belief and Beyond, Navigating the Spiritual Landscape of Childbirth. We'll be talking more about hypnosis, German new medicine and questions for discernment in regards to hiring your midwife and how to avoid new age and occult practices. It is a juicy and educational conversation that you are not going to want to miss. So make sure you're subscribed to the podcast. We hope you have a great week and may the peace and grace of our Lord Jesus be with you.